Well, good morning. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to our sermon passage this morning, Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 11 through 22. Beginning in verse 11, Paul writes, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which has been made in flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, what a privilege it is to come together in a time of corporate worship. God, to worship you together, to exalt your name together, Father. God, I pray just in the stillness of these moments, you would prepare our hearts now for the preaching of your word. God, thank you for the gift of your spirit that helps us in this task of interpreting this word and applying it to our lives. And Father, as this word that centers on this idea of reconciliation is given this morning, I pray three things. The first two, for those who are in Christ Jesus, God, first. Would you just help us to marvel in our hearts at this thing that you have done through the gospel? God, that we who were once dead in our trespasses and sins, children of your wrath, now in Christ Jesus, have been made alive and we are the objects of your kindness for eternity. Oh God, would you just overwhelm our hearts with gratitude and worship for you in response to what you have done. God, secondly, I pray that you would help us this week, next week, as we continue to work through this This book of Ephesians, God, I pray that you would help us to unpack all of the implications of this truth in our life, God. God, help us to know what this means for our relationship with you. Indeed, God, right now we have access to come before you because of this reality. God, help us to unpack all this means for us and our identity. Unpack all it means for us and who we are in this world and the way we live our lives. And then finally, Father, for those who are outside of Christ Jesus this morning. 
God, would your spirit do the work of regenerating hearts to bring people to faith so that they can come to know what it is to be reconciled to you as well. So God, we thank you for the power of your word and the spirit who moves within it. We thank you that your word will never return void. And we thank you that you are always faithful to your word. Be with your servant now as he unpacks this passage for us this morning, God, as we share in this time together. And it's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks, Jason. All of us are made differently. All of us are, you know, kind of wired differently. I think we all recognize that and understand it. I'm, I'm a kind of a big picture kind of a person. Um, I, let me just explain that in, in this way. Um, so I received a gift this year from Susan and Brian for Christmas. It was, um, it was one of these carts that you see, if you go to the beach, you might see people moving all their fishing stuff out to the surf, you know, big wheels on it. It's got room for a cooler, all your fishing rods. I, I've always wanted one of those, one of those carts, you know. Well, they gave me one. Well, it comes in this big, nice box, and there's a picture on the front of it that says exactly what this thing is, right? I mean, it's, it's this cart with wheels, and there's little holders for the rods and all this. I mean, that's the big picture, right? So I dumped all this stuff out on the floor in the office when it came time to put it together, and it was a lot of pieces. I mean, and I thought, there's the picture. It's it, What can be complicated about this thing? You know, right? Am I the only one in this room that would do something like that? I think not. I think not. Some of you guys need to, you know. So... Long story short, you know how the story ended. I pull out the directions and I start reading them. And this big picture guy all of a sudden became a detail guy, you know, or otherwise the big picture would never come into view. It would never, it wouldn't happen. Well, I'm so thankful that, that we serve a God, that we have been redeemed and saved by a God who is big picture, but at the same time, has the wisdom, the insight, the, the knowledge, all that we've seen in the first part of Ephesians to get it done, to, to do the detail work, to do the, the really hard work that's required. What is that big picture? Well, we'll get there eventually, but I think that it can all be summarized if you'll take your, take your Bible and look at the book of Ephesians, not at the passage that Jason just read, We'll look, we'll look at that, but go a little bit further in chapter 3. And Paul, as we're going to see over the next few weeks, talks a lot about this thing that he calls a mystery. A mystery. And the mystery is not a whodunit. The mystery is something that in the past has not been revealed, not been made clear, but now is being revealed, is being made clear. And if you'll look in the middle of chapter 3 there, it says... Starting in verse 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And look at verse 9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might be 
might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to, he says in verse 11, the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So back even even in the first part of Ephesians, before the foundation of the world, he chose us in Christ that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption that we should be his children. And he goes on to lay that out for us in chapter 1. The big picture is that God has in mind what we see in the passage that Jason just read. We're going to work backwards for just a second. God is going to show off the manifold wisdom of his marvelous creativity, of his glory. All of that in the gospel is going to be seen through the church. Well, what is the church? In verse 22 of what Jason just read, we are being built together into this spiritual dwelling place of the Lord. We saw in the book of Revelation that there's a new heaven and a new earth coming about one day. And that the dwelling place of God will be with men. And that that new Jerusalem is both a place and a people. And that that people are the redeemed of Christ. We are the new creation of Christ, if you will. We are those from every tribe and tongue and nation that are bought by the blood of Jesus and redeemed by God's grace. And so he is building us up into this spiritual dwelling place for God. And we've talked a lot about all the pictures of the church that we have, a spiritual building being put together out of living stones, a flock of sheep that are being bound together by our chief shepherd, a body of all these little parts and, and pieces and ligaments and joints and muscles all working and growing into our head. A bride that is loved who was once a whore, who was once a harlot, and being loved and brought into a covenant relationship with God. All of these analogies, all these pictures of who we are as a church, that's the big picture of, of what God is doing so that he'll get the glory for that and show off his manifold wisdom. How's he going to do that? What are all the pieces that go into this magnificent picture of God's creative, glorious grace? Well, there's a lot of pieces, and every one of those pieces is broken. Every one of them is broken. So it's not just a matter of putting together broken pieces. It's a matter of remaking everything, redoing everything putting all those pieces back together so that they can be fitted into this amazing building. And that's what we saw in the first part of Ephesians. That's what Jason and JT have covered over the last couple of weeks. We saw in chapter 1, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. God is taking the slate of our sin and putting it on Christ and marking it. Paid in full. And it's out of the riches of his grace that he lavishes on us. That's the picture that we have in Ephesians chapter 1. And all of this, he says, is according to his purpose. His purpose is that big picture, which he set forth in Christ, Paul says in Ephesians 1, in the fullness of time. And what is that? It's, it's a part of that same idea that we have in chapter 3. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. So here's what God is doing. He is taking a broken, just just trashed world and broken, trashed people. And by the grace of the gospel, through the blood of Christ, He is making us new. 
what we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, taking dead people and making us alive. Not alive on our own, alive together with Christ. And joining us together in this mysterious thing called the church. And all of this is by His grace. All of this is by His grace as we reach out in faith and take hold of it. And it's His gracious gift to us. So this picture that we have is this big picture, this master plan. is to unite everything in heaven and on earth in Christ into this spiritual dwelling place for God. And He's going to show that off to all of creation, to all of the universe, as a picture of His manifest glory, of His creativity, of His goodness to us. And He's going to do this by His grace as He takes broken individuals like you and me, and through the blood of Christ saves us, makes us new creatures in Christ, and binds us together. Are we there yet? <laughs> wow. No. We're not there yet. But God is in the, in the work of creating new men and women, new students, boys and girls in Christ. He's in the business of doing that. And he's binding us together in this mysterious organism. It's not an organization. It's not the JCs. It's not the Ruatan. It's not the Kiwanis. It is the body of Jesus. It is the body of Christ. A living, breathing organism. And he's putting us together in this organism. And, and we are his workmanship. Created in Christ for good works. And what we have here in this last part of Ephesians chapter 2 is this, we, we see this picture of, of who we're going to be and what he is making us, but Paul wants us to remember what it was like. What it was like. Remember at one time, he says, and he wants us to think back and reflect back on what we were outside of Christ, even as we look forward to what he is doing for us in Christ. And, and he uses a reality of his day, that, that I have really struggled with in how to, how to communicate the, the depth of this reality. This, this reality of a wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. And it's, it's, it's a wall, it's a separation that for a long time I thought, man, we, we just have a really hard time getting a grasp on that as, as white Americans. As, as the majority, if you will. And I was looking at it through racial eyes only. And, and I'm thankful that the Lord just, this week, it was like, oh, wait a minute. There, there's so much more to this than race. Now, it includes that, and we will spend all of next week talking about it. Because we're going to work our way through this passage in, over the course of two weeks. But the cultural reality of Paul's day was that there is a wall, high, strong, thick of separation between Jews and non-Jews. That's what a Gentile is. It's someone other than a Jew. It is racial, but it is also cultural, and it is religious, and it is political. There's so many dimensions to this divide. But that's the reality that Paul was writing into when he wrote the book of Ephesians. But it had been there a long time before Paul wrote about it, right? It had been there a long time before Jesus met the, the woman at the well. And his disciples marveled that he would be talking to this Gentile woman in the middle of the day. 
They marveled at it. But, it. but go all the way back. Go all the way back, if you will, even in the Old Testament to the book of Esther. Where Haman wanted to commit genocide. And do away with the Jewish people. Do away with the people of God. Go all the way back in history to the Inquisition and the Crusades. And, and, and currently even the situation between Arabs and Jews. This thing is not new. It's not new. I've set a goal Part of what I want to do this year that, that I, in some ways I say it every year, yeah, it's a resolution, if you will, but I want to read more. And so I've been putting together a list of books that I want to read. Oh my word. Um, it's, it's a, it's, it, in some ways it seems to be an exercise in futility, but I, I mean, I'm already, you know, way further along in that regard, even, even so far than I was. But I, I read a review of a book. A few weeks ago in the Wall Street Journal, and I thought, I want to read that book. And the title of that book is Hitler's American Gamble. Hitler's American Gamble. And it's written by two historians at the University of Cambridge and King's College in London. And they basically just lay out in this book the gamble that Hitler was willing to make. That the United States would not be willing to or able to successfully fight a war on two fronts. You see, many people may think that we declared war against Hitler. But on June the 12th, excuse me, December the 12th, 1942, 41, I'm getting my years messed up. The day after Pearl Harbor, Hitler declared war on the United States. We didn't declare war on him. He declared war on us. And this book lays out the reality that, or, or, or their understanding, and I think, it's, I think it's accurate, that he was just taking a gamble that the United States would focus on Japan and let him have his way. And when he realized that that would not be the case, when all of the, the, the ability and machinery and willpower of the United States was made evident, then what they say in that book was Hitler believed that the Jews had manipulated what, what he called Anglo-Saxons. People in America that looked like the Germans. That Hitler believed that the Jews had manipulated Anglo-Saxons into a war with those that were their racial kindred, i.e. the Germans. That's, that's one of the theories that they put forth in this book. And that racial paranoia was critical part of Hitler's makeup. And what they say in this book is that when Hitler realized he could not strike at the Jews in America, he would strike at the Jews in Europe. And he did. And he did. Hitler made a warning in 1939, according to Sims and Latterman, the authors of this book, and, and I've, I've read part of this speech. He, he made a warning then that a world at war would bring about the annihilation of the Jewish people. Well, that was a self-fulfilling prophecy in Hitler's mind. My point in that is that animosity, violence, hatred for the Jews is not new. It's been there a long, long time. And it came to fore in ways that the world could not imagine during World War II. But Gentile hatred for Jews is not new. But Jewish hatred for Gentiles is not new either. And one of the things that we see as we look through the Bible is that 
it is so messed up in that regard. Think back all the way to Genesis chapter 12. God's covenant promise to Abraham and the intention in that covenant promise. Do you remember? Genesis 12, 1 to 3, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land I'll show you, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was God's intent for the people that he had set apart in the Old Testament. The descendants of Abraham. And Walter Kaiser, just a great Old Testament scholar, says that this is the first great commission mandate in the Bible. The Genesis 12 is the first great commission of the Bible, where God promised to bless Abraham, and that through Abraham, God would then bless all of the world. He would make Israel his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, a holy nation that would represent him, and through them, God would manifest himself to the rest of the world, and it did not. They failed in that. They rebelled against that. And so God took the very nations that the Israelites were to reach and use those nations to judge Israel. And it's, there's a record of it. It's first the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians. Then comes Alexander the Great with the Greek culture. Then the Romans, then the Persians came in again. Then, if you read history, it was the Byzantine Christians that came in then. And then we have the Persian Muslims coming in. Heck, in 1917, the British took over Jerusalem. So there's a long history of Jewish animosity toward Gentile and Gentile hatred. F.F. Bruce says, no Iron Curtain, if you're too young to know what the Iron Curtain is. Google it, okay? No Iron Curtain, no color bar, no class distinction, no national frontier of today is more absolute than the divide that was between Jews and Gentiles of Paul's day. Now, can I just say that I'm just not quite sure that's still the case? All right? F.F. Bruce, a generation ago, said there's nothing in our culture today like that divide between Jews and Gentiles. But in our tribalistic, divided, really a, a culture of disintegrating relationships, I'm just not sure that's the case anymore. Which makes this passage so profound and so important. Which makes this reality so absolutely essential to us as Christians today. Let me just... Part of the, the reality of a cultural division was evident and always before the people of God in the New Testament in an architectural division. And what I mean by that is, is the temple. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. In, in fact, one person I was reading this week, one, one commentator said the old, the old Covenant was all about separation. And in some sense, that's true. And I'm not going to take a long time to get into this. All I want you to notice is, is the uh, my little pointer thingy working. I love this thing. Man, it's so much fun. Um, all, of, all of this, and, and I've never been to the Temple Mount, but it is just that. It's a mount, okay, the highest part of the city there in Jerusalem. And each one of these levels, this outer court that you see here, and then the staircase that leads up to that inner temple wall, 
And then even higher on the inside is the is that center court the center court of the women, and then even higher than that is there where the Holy of Holies was. So everything is building itself up, stepping up in this picture of proximity to God. But on the outside is this outer temple wall, okay? This it's like this banister that's up here. It wasn't a solid wall, it had little openings in it, but that was the wall that separated the Gentiles from being able to access anything any closer. And not only were they just not able to access it, they were warned that if you do so, you will die. These two little plaques, if you will, which scholars say were throughout that that balustrade, two of these have been found by archaeologists. And that's the interpretation of what's on them. No foreigner may enter within the balustrade around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught... On himself shall he put blame for the death that will ensue. No Gentile was allowed to come into that area. No closer. You can't come any further. That picture of separation in the temple was the cultural reality that was going on between Jews and Gentiles in Paul's day. And into that reality, Paul writes... What we see in Ephesians 2 and further about this amazing plan that God has to break down a wall and bring it all together. And he says, first, remember the reality of cultural, remember that word, cultural alienation. You were Gentiles in the flesh, he says. Here he is highlighting a real physical difference. Gentiles are those who had not come through a bloodline from Abraham. There's a reality that there are racial differences, right? And so that's the picture that Paul is pointing to first. Remember the reality of your differences, if you will. Or in some ways, a commonality. We're all of the flesh. All of us are skin and bones. But he points out that there's a difference. Some are Gentiles in the flesh. And then Paul puts a commentary in. I think this is, this is his commentary that the Holy Spirit led him to write that just gives us a picture of kind of the perspective that we should have on this reality of circumcision. Because he says, yeah, you're called circumcision. You're called uncircumcision by those that are circumcised. And by the way, that's something that's done with the hands. The new covenant reality is that the circumcision that the old covenant pointed to was to be a circumcision of the heart. God was interested in the heart, not the outer part. And Paul points out here that this outward picture of that covenant relationship, that old covenant relationship, is something that the Jews then used as, 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 a, as a lens of disdain for those who are not like them. That which made them a common people, if you weren't like them, There was hatred there. Such hatred, Kent Hughes says in his commentary, the Jews believed that Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. A common motto among the Jews of that day was the best serpents crush, the best Gentiles kill. No Jew was allowed to participate in any way with the birth of a Gentile child because it would bring another heathen into the world, in their view. So do you see how deep this went? And so to be uncircumcised 
to the Jews was to be outside of that ring of fellowship with us, to not be like us. But to be uncircumcised also, in their view, was to be separated from God. And Paul then goes into this reminder to the Gentiles, and in the book of Romans he gives the same reminder to the Jews, that you are indeed separated from God. That a physical reality that's seen in this division is also a spiritual reality of how we are separated from God by our sin. And so notice what he says here. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Five things there. Separated, alienated, he says. Strangers, hopeless and godless. Oh, my word. Paul says, remember, that's who you were. That's who you were. When he says they are separated from Christ, what he's saying there is that outside of their relationship to Christ, excuse me, outside of the fact that that they were not Jewish, the Jews, as berated and as persecuted and as difficult as their life had been, always held on to the hope of a Messiah. Oh, we're holding on to the hope of a Messiah. Gentiles didn't have that. That a Messiah had not been promised to them through them in that same way that he had been promised to the Jews. And Paul's point here is that you are are separated, separated from the benefits of that promise to the Jews because you are not a part of that. And I was thinking about that. Think about what we know to be benefits to us as American citizens. We've been born and raised here, most of us. And we know the benefits that come to us. There are people in this world, they don't have those benefits, but not only do they not have the, they've never heard of it. They can't imagine that that's available to someone. And outside of that Jewish promise in the Old Testament, they were separated from Christ. They did not have a promise, a, a connection to that promise of the Messiah. Number two, they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. God had chosen to make himself known through the descendants of Abraham. That's, that was the people he had chosen to himself. And the entire Old Covenant, as I said, seems to be this picture of separation in some ways. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 23, it says in verse 2, No one born of a foreign marriage nor of any of his descendants may enter into the assembly of the Lord even down to the tenth generation. If you're, not a, if you're not born to, to one of the descendants of Abraham physically, then you're not allowed in the assembly. And after the exile, after they had been judged by God and taken into exile and brought back and led back into the promised land through Ezra and Nehemiah, it was no different. It was no different. In Nehemiah, they discovered the book of Moses. They read it aloud. And here's what they read. That no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter into the assembly of God. And it says next, when the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. So, separated. Alienated. Number three, strangers. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Now, the word covenants there is plural and promise is singular. Is that important? I think so. I think, I think it's important just to recognize that God had made a series of covenants with his people. It had started with Abraham. 
It continued on through Abraham's sons and his descendants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way down, if you will, to David in 2 Samuel. God's promise was that your descendants are my people. And from David, there will always be one of yours on the throne. Lots of covenants, but all of them pointed to the same single promise that I referred to earlier in Genesis. Abraham, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So there's one promise, but many covenants. And those outside of Christ, those outside of that covenant promise that comes to us through Christ, are separated from that. No access to it. And then finally, he says these last two terms, hopeless, without hope in the world, and without God. And I've kind of combined those two together. Because if we live in anything today, as in Paul's day, we live in a religious world. Right? I mean, when Paul was at Mars Hill, he, he passed all of these idols, all these statues of gods. He was just amazed by that. They even had one in case they'd missed it, the unknown God. They're everywhere. And we have, we have as many, if not more, now as they did then. It's not that there's no religion. There are more people interested in spirituality than there ever have been. So in the pagan world, they were religious. But, but what he's saying here is that even though you are religious, you don't have any hope. And really, you don't have any God. So how can a world and a life be filled with idols and be godless? Because as we read, as we studied in Isaiah... Idols are nothing. They are not gods. They are no gods. There's there's no reality there. And so the Gentiles were without hope and they were without God. The culture of Paul's day was hopeless in so many ways. I was reading this week. Listen to these quotes. Here's here's a man named Theogenes. He was a he was he was a, a philosopher, if you will, in 500 B.C. Here's what he wrote. I will try to have a good time while I'm young, because I will lie under the earth for a long time, voiceless as a stone, and I shall leave the sunlight that I've loved, then I shall see no more. He says, have a good time, my soul, while young. Soon others will take my place, and I shall be black earth in death. No mortal is happy under the sun. Sounds like something Solomon wrote, doesn't it, in Ecclesiastes? A Roman poet named Catullus wrote, The sun can, ri- can sit and rise again, but once our brief light sits, there's no, there is one unending night to be slept through. The Gentile world was hopeless. I mean, suicide rates were high in that day, Rodney Stark tells us, because people would just felt like life was hopeless. Suicide notes were found by archaeologists that, I'm killing myself because I was born. It was a hopeless reality in that day, in that Gentile world. And it was godless in the sense, it doesn't mean that they didn't have their own little gods. Here's what one writer's put, and I, and I, and I think this nails it. They said, without hope and without God means without God as a blessing. God sees everything they do. He's a constant watcher of men and women. He knows everything that we do. It's not... It's not like it's not like there's no God at all. But without God means he's made no promise to bless you. 
That's what godless means. Think a minute about hope. I know raging pagans, and I used to be one, who are hopeful. Now, we have short-term hopes. I hope Carolina beats Duke. I don't, I don't think they will, you know. I don't really have a dog in the fight this afternoon in either of football games. I hope they're good games. I really don't think they'll be as good as they were last weekend, but I have short-term hopes. I hope dinner's good tonight. Okay? I have hope. I can be without Christ and have that hope. I can be without Christ and have a longer view of hope. I hope my children, my sons, continue to do well in life. I hope my grandchildren do well in life. That's a long-term hope. But outside of Christ, it stops when breath does. There's no eternal hope outside of Christ. And, and, and that's what, I think that's what it's talking about here, that we are hopeless. When we have eternal hope in Christ, we have all hope. <laughs> Amen? It does not matter short term. It doesn't really matter long term or intermediate. I have hope in Christ. Jesus quoted Matthew 12, quoted Isaiah in Matthew 12. He said, my, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed, it says, he will not break. A smoldering wick, he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And then listen to this last sentence. In his name will Gentiles have hope. Jesus doesn't crush the bruised reed. He doesn't put out the smoldering wick. In Christ, nothing is hopeless, right? Outside of Christ, there is no hope. And that's what Paul means when he says that. He says, remember your alienation. But then he says, think about the reality of your new identity. Remember again, he says, remember is an important word in this, in this passage. Remember that now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Look at the passage. Just look at the big picture of the passage that you have here. In chapter, in chapter 2, starting in verse 11 and 12, remember you were separated. You were alienated. You were strangers. You were hopeless. And you were without God. Look at the end of that section. Verse 19. We'll get there in a couple of weeks. You're no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer separated, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You're no longer on your own. You're part of the household of God being built into this beautiful picture. What's changed? Look right in the middle. But now in Christ Jesus. It's like JT said last week. That, that, that important but God up in verse 4. And now but now in Christ Jesus. In Christ everything changes. Amen. Everything changes in Christ. In Christ, it's this picture that we saw back in chapter 1. I encouraged you to mark up your Bible then. Let me encourage you to do it again. Go back and read in chapter 1. And every place you see in Christ or in Him, mark it up. Just to be reminded. 
in Christ every spiritual blessing. In Him, before the foundation of the world, chosen to be holy and blameless. In the Beloved, we're blessed. In Him, we have redemption. In Him, we've obtained an inheritance. In Him, when we heard the word of truth and believed, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. In Him, in Him, in Him, in Christ. That's what it means to be brought in. In Christ. You are brought near. It says those who were far off were the Gentiles, and those who were near were God's covenant people. He says both you who were far off and you who were near have been brought brought near. Do you know what the commonality is there? Whether you're near or whether you're far, you're still not in apart from Christ. You can be this close, and it's an eternity's difference. And you can be that far away. And you're just as lost as the one that's close. And so here's this picture that he has. We have been brought near. How? Through the blood of Christ. It makes it possible for Jews and Gentiles, blacks and whites, all the tribes and everything else to be brought together and brought not just near, but in. In. And how's it done? It's a violent act. In Christ, you were far off and been brought near by the blood. He himself is our peace, who's made us both one and has broken down the wall, the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. Abolishing. Do you hear that? Blood broken down, abolished. There's nothing gentle about this because there's nothing gentle about the cross. It's God's violent response, holy, constrained, perfect. But it's His violent response to sin. And it is His answer to the brokenness and the alienation that is so real. Yeah, the walls and the curtains and all of that in the tabernacle, until Christ, until Christ. Matthew 27, Jesus cried out in a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. And what happened next? from the top to the bottom, the curtain was torn. And now it's not just just come a little nearer, it's come in. Come in. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. How's it happen? Through the blood. We are blood-bought. No, we are blood-brought. It's through the blood that we're brought in there. We were sinners. We were separated. We were distant from God. And now we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. So there's no, there's no reason for us as a church. In fact, there's nothing else to stand on as gospel people except the blood of Christ. That's it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and His righteousness. And modern scholars, our politically correct mindset... Liberal understanding of, of whatever, we want to shy away from this idea of the penal substitutionary death of Christ. I would say that reflects poorly on God, cosmic child abuse. And that reflects poorly on people. We're not that bad. Oh, my word. Let the scriptures speak for themselves, let God speak for himself through the word. Where he says that apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And where he says that the blood of bulls and goats are just symbolic 
They can never take away sin. But it says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. But through the shed blood of Christ, there is full atonement. That's the promise. We are blood bought, blood brought into the very presence of God. And the, and the answer here is just to rejoice in that reconciliation. I appreciate what Jason does with his whiteboard. I really do. I really do. I, I wrote a letter last week to Brad. He turned 40. I just felt like it would be a good idea for me as a dad to write a kind of a letter of blessing. And one of the things I said in there was I was envious in a way of Brad's analytical mind. He's a mechanical engineer. I have no idea how that came from me. I don't. I'm just, right? I'm big guy, dump, I mean, big picture guy, dump the pieces out on the floor and hope we can figure it out. No, no, no. That is not Brad's way. And Jason's like that too. And I'm thankful for that, brother. I really am. And so when he posted this on our Facebook page, this diagram, this understanding of these, these critically important, this is where the whole thing turns, okay? This is, this is where it turns here. It's important for us to see this. That Jesus himself, verse 14, is our peace. How so? What does that look like? He's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh. The dividing wall of hostility. And how did he do that? Well, he abolished the law and the commandments that were that separating barrier, if you will, between Jew and Gentile. The circumcision. He broke that down. He, he did away with that. And he did away with that through his own body, through his blood being shed. He broke that down. He did away with that. And so this idea that this peace is so profoundly comes only through Christ. That's the answer. And next week we'll think about that. That is the answer to every division in our culture. It's the answer to every division that is just blowing our culture apart at the seams. And and, and we'll look at that. He himself is our peace. He's the peacemaker between us and God. He is the one who comes between. And and he himself is emphatic in the Greek language. That's the focus. He himself, Jesus himself, is our peace. And it is He who has made us both one. And it is He, as Jason puts on, that has broken down this wall. In His flesh, by His flesh being crushed, so was that wall. By His blood being shed, the pieces are there to be put. The pieces are, that wall, that wall is broken down and, and we are made new in Christ. Look, Isaiah told us that He would be the Prince of Peace, right? He'll be a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. That's who He is. And Jesus promised His disciples in John 14, My peace I'll leave with you. My peace I give to you. So He is our peace. That's the picture that we have there. And He is our peace first off in a horizontal way, but also vertically. It's, it says there that we have made, he, made our, he, he Himself is our peace. He's made us both one. Curtis Vaughn was one of my New Testament professors at Southwestern back in the day. Here's what, here's what Dr. Vaughn wrote. And just picture this. Just, there's a word picture here that I think is so cool. God lays one hand on the Jew and the other on the Gentile and brings the two together in Himself. So long as Jew and Gentiles are unbelievers, 
They continue to be at enmity with one another. It is only as each is united to Christ that they can be at harmony one with the other. I thought about this. I, I think in pictures. And I was thinking about, all right, just imagine a perfect triangle. Jew is here. Gentile is here. God is at the top. And there in the middle is that cross. And we are reconciled to God as we are brought together in Christ. We use that picture lots of times in marriage counseling. But that's this picture that I see. And in Christ, the moral law was fulfilled. He did it perfectly. And in Christ, the ceremonial law was done away with. It's unnecessary. And so in Christ, that wall's been broken down and the barriers are gone. And because he fulfilled the moral law, taking away the condemnation, then we, by that grace, through faith, are saved. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And it's not of works. It's not of maintaining the law. Jesus did that for us. And he does that for everyone who comes to him in faith. What a beautiful picture. And we have peace with God through that then as well. There's peace vertically and peace horizontally. And I can think of no better picture of that peace than what Jonathan read to you at the beginning. This enmity and hostility killed and this peace proclaimed that Paul writes about as what Jonathan read in Romans 5. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died, look at this, for the ungodly. Earlier in Romans, Paul makes it clear. He died for the ungodly Jew. He dies for the ungodly Gentile. He dies for the ungodly Afghan. He dies for the ungodly American. He dies for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now received justification. We've been justified by His blood. How much more will we be saved from wrath? It's this beautiful picture that we've received this reconciliation from God. We'll go further with this next week. I was joking with some guys earlier this morning. You know, um, we might get our toes stepped on this week. We might get them stomped on next week. Because I just, I just feel it's important for us to really take the time necessary to understand how this passage can be applied in our lives. Let me give you four short applications before we go. First word is stand fast. Stand fast in the eternal hope that we have, church. Don't be captivated by those short-term hopes. Don't be inundated with anxiety about even those long-term things that may not be eternal. Yeah, be, be, they're important. But don't be consumed with them and don't be perished. Stand fast in the eternal hope that we have. Because it is, as Jonathan told us, a living hope. Amen? Stand fast in that living hope. Secondly, our ability to draw near has been bought by the blood of Christ. Let's not waste it. Draw near. Draw near. Draw near through the Word. Draw near in our prayer time. Draw near through the body of Christ and our fellowship together. Because it is in those means of grace that our hope is strengthened. Draw near. Thirdly, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.12, Since we have such a hope, he says, we are very bold. So hold out this word of hope. Hold it out. It's the only hope that there is, church. Right? It's the only hope that there is for Roxborough. 
It's the only hope that there is for America. It's the only hope that there is for this broken world. Hold out the hope that is ours in Christ. Loudly proclaim it. Boldly live it out. Risk it for the sake of the gospel. Because it's all going to be okay. We have eternal hope. And finally, as I mentioned earlier, He Himself is our peace. He has given to us this ministry of reconciliation. So let's live it out. Live it out. The voice of the church being spoken into this culture should be one of hope and reconciliation. That should be the voice of the church into this culture. There are others who will speak other voices. We are the redeemed. We have been reconciled to God through Christ. And He has given to us a ministry of reconciliation. And that should be the voice. So we are called to live this out. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for Your Word to us in the book of Ephesians. I thank you that Paul spoke into a broken, hurting world in Ephesus and to those believers there, and that your word is still living. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's just alive today as it was when you breathed it out by your Holy Spirit. And it's, it's relevant to our culture. It's relevant to my life and to our life here at Westwood. So, Father, we pray for you to empower your word by the work of your Spirit so that we can stand fast in the hope that we have in Christ. That we will draw near, Lord. Help us to be a people of the Word. A people of prayer. Lord, help us to be a people that hold out this great gospel as the only answer. Father, I thank You that You enable us and empower us to do that by Your Holy Spirit. He is ours also in Christ, and we thank You for that. Today, if you've never trusted in Jesus... If your life is marked more by alienation than it is by reconciliation, I invite you to come to Christ. It's through His work on, it's through His perfection. It's His, it's His fulfilling the law. That righteousness can be yours. That confidence that you can stand before God one day clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Not your own works, not your own religion, not your membership at Westwood or any place else. Your only hope is in Jesus. Come to Him today. I invite you to do that. I'll be down here at the front and I can talk to you about that. Let's stand and worship as we close.